Jeff, Jim, Doug, Don, and Troy for participating in worship this morning. Whether you're here on the World Wide Web today, we're glad you're here. We are the body of Christ. There's one church and one body, and we worship, whether we're in the Ukraine at 5 o'clock in the evening, or South Korea at 11 o'clock in the evening, or Central West Africa at 3 o'clock. We're one body, and we're glad you're here. Today we're in for a treat. We have a quite an individual here to bring us our message today. I met him this morning and uh, I could tell he's a guy I could sit down with and talk for a long time. Uh, he didn't finish high school, but he has a PhD. I've never met somebody I don't think like that, I believe. Uh, born in Limerick, Ireland, his wife's from South Africa. His children were born, a son in Louisiana, a daughter in England. He's preached in Germany, England, Mississippi, Maryland, Mount Pleasant, Northridge, where he is now. And also, uh, while he was at Lubbock Christian University, he preached at Brownfield. You'll notice his accent probably comes from that area, I suspect. <laughs> he says he's from the hill country of Ireland. But uh, anyway, we, we look forward to having you today with us, Derek, for both services. I think Jody told him two services after he got him to come. So uh, treat him well, come up and see him afterwards, and we look forward to the word of God. Thank you. Is it on? Great. It's wonderful to be here. People ask me, well, what do your children sound like? And I say, they sound like they're American. Well, what does your wife sound like? And I say, well, she has kept her South African accent. And then they look at me and say, what happened to you? You know, I say, well, we'll go through that. I'm going to ask you, if you would, to open your Bibles to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. We're going to begin reading in verse 15, and this will be the text that we'll stay in today. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15. Here we have this beautiful hymn of praise to Jesus. Colossians 1, 15. He is the head, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven, and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. I love that phrase, that Jesus is preeminent. And some of the other translations that has the phrase, that he might be supreme. Is Jesus Christ supreme in your life today? Is Jesus supreme in this congregation today? Many years ago, I was growing up in Limerick, Ireland, 
And shopping in Limerick, Ireland, when I was a child, is vastly different from shopping at a super Walmart. Growing up, we did not buy in bulk. There was two reasons why we didn't buy in bulk. We were poor, very poor. We lived week to week, paycheck to paycheck. And the other is that we lived in a very small house, and you could not buy items in bulk because there was no place to store them. We grew up in a small house, but looking back, we had some beautiful experiences uh, that are just we took for granted. We had fresh milk delivered to the front door every morning. Uh, we lived close to a, a baker, and he baked fresh bread every day, and we would go and visit him. We had a fruit and veg man, or what you might call a produce person, that would drive through the neighborhood every Friday night, and we would buy our, our fruit and veg fresh from him. I remember when I was a young child, I remember coming, him coming through the neighborhood we lived in, and when he first came by, he came by with a horse pulling a wagon that he sold his produce off of. Some people are thinking, how old are you? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and then that's how we got kind of the, the milk, the bread, the, the, the fruit and vegetables. But once a week, once a week, my mother would send one of us to the local corner store just to get the weekly essentials that she didn't get from those other areas. My mother would write out a shopping list and I would go to the store, either my brother and I would go. You'd get those weekly supplies and you could fit them all in a large banana box. It's so different today. If I go to uh, Sam's today, it seems I always spend way too much money, and I feel like I should have brought a bigger vehicle than my small hatchback car. But my brother and I growing up, we would fight for the privilege of going to that corner store and getting uh, those weekly essentials, because the person who owned the store would always give us a small bar of candy as a reward for coming and getting the stuff. One week, my mother put on the shopping list laundry detergent. This is a long time ago. There were no pods. There was no liquid. It only came in one style, and that was powder. And my mother didn't write down which brand to get. And so the shopkeeper asked me, which one, Ariel or Purcell? There was only two brands. My mother didn't write down what size to get, so the shopkeeper said, what size, small or large? They were the good old days. One format powder, two brands and two sizes. A couple of weeks ago, I was here in Longview. I had to get my car serviced over at the Honda store. And as I was getting ready to head back, I asked my wife, did you need anything from the store? I was going to go to the super Walmart and get some items. And she sent me a text with a few items. I picked up the first few ones pretty easy. And then the next item on the list was laundry detergent. So I went to the laundry detergent aisle, and it seemed like it was one of those sermons that went on forever and ever and ever. I slowly walked down the aisle, and I was amazed because now I was overwhelmed with choice. There was powder, and there was pods, and there was liquid. There was numerous brands, and there was numerous sizes. At first, I was really impressed by all the various scents 
Let me share with you the scents you can get laundry detergent in. You can get cold water clean, spring meadow, April fresh, fresh coral blast, botanical rain, Febreze, honey lavender, mountain spring. That's pretty impressive. And then I kept looking and I saw not only did they come in various scents, they came in many types of styles. You can get ultra oxyclean, downy, odor rescue, sport, dark in colors, free and gentle, hygienic clean, which is unscented. I was simply overwhelmed with the choice. And I thought, there's something missing. I have to get the right one. So I took out my smartphone, and I went onto the Tide website. And I was even more overwhelmed. They sorted all just the liquid detergent into nine different categories. I counted them all, and there were 36 different styles of Tide liquid detergent. Not the powder. Not the pods, not different sizes, 36 different choices. And as I looked down that aisle in, in the Super Walmart, it seemed every second, every second brand had the sticker, new and improved. Everything was new and improved. And I'm looking down and I'm thinking, how much can you really improve laundry detergent? The choice was overwhelming. I was exhausted from looking at that. I was really missing the good old days of just two brands and two sizes, only in powder. I was exhausted when I finally picked Tide Original. That's all. <laughs> Tide Original, I say it, I would go safe. But I was exhausted. I said, I need to go home and relax and do something easy like read Hebrew. A lot easier than picking laundry detergent. And I was so glad I picked that detergent. There was only one item left on the list. I would get that and go home. I was almost done until I saw the last item on the list, and it was toothpaste. <laughs> if you thought the choice in laundry detergent was overwhelming, you should see the choice in toothpaste. So here's the problem that the church in, in Colossae was facing. I think I would phrase it like this. They were facing the challenge of new and improved. Uh, there were some people there, we might say, came from a Jewish background, and they loved Jesus and they loved the gospel, but they wanted to reach out to their community more powerfully and connect with them, and they would have this way of saying, if only we met our worship service a little bit more tuned to connect with Jewish people, maybe we'd grow with more Jews. And then there were some people there that came out of a, a Roman background and said, I, I love Jesus, and this gospel is really something we want to share with our community. But if we give it more of a Roman flavor, maybe we can connect with some people from the Roman background. You can find all of this in chapter 2. And it seems there were some people in the congregation that came from the East and the mystic background, and they said, we love Jesus. But I think that maybe that we could incorporate some of the principles of spiritual formation from the East, and that would make Christianity more powerful and more palatable, and maybe we could help our congregation to grow. So they were trying to improve on Jesus. And so Paul writes this short, powerful letter we call 
Colossians. And here's his underlying argument. You can't improve on Jesus. And the church said, amen. Paul said, you can't improve on Jesus. Stop crying. What you can do, you can grow and you can mature in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. You can deepen your faith. You can strengthen your faith. You can share your faith. You can mature in Jesus, but you can't improve on Jesus. And so what Paul does through the letter, from the first word to the last word, is this wonderful letter to show how rich and powerful Jesus is and to encourage us to turn away from all those gimmicks and fads that ultimately are empty compared to the fullness of what we have in Jesus. And Paul, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, he has a hymn, a beautiful hymn. And this hymn just gives us a taste of the fullness of Jesus. Look at the very beginning of this hymn. He is the image of the invisible God. Who is Jesus in his relationship to God? Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus, by the very act of incarnation, God becoming flesh, he is the image of the invisible God. Now I understand this at a very shallow level. I believe it with all my heart and with all my mind. And I can spend the rest of my life trying to plummet the depths of what it means that Jesus is God become flesh. But sometimes it's like grabbing jello and you're holding on to it very gently in your hands. But if you try to grab it too strong and squeeze it, it just gets away from you. I can't fully even begin to comprehend the wonder of what it means that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. But it's phrases like this that bring us to worship. Because sometimes the magnificence and wonder of who Jesus is brings us to our knees as we raise up our voices in worship. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And then Paul goes on to describe Jesus and his relationship to creation. For by he's the firstborn of creation, for by him all things were created. Not only is Jesus God become flesh, not only is Jesus crucified on the cross as our Savior, not only is Jesus raised in the grave on the third day to become Lord, not only did Jesus ascend back into heaven, but Jesus is the one through whom God created all things. I hope I'm stretching your mind and helping you to deepen your faith. How can you improve upon Jesus? Because he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of creation. And then he says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Look at the next verse. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Not only did Jesus create all things, Jesus is sustaining all things. I try to recycle, but it's kind of hard to do in Texas. I want to take care of this beautiful creation that God has given to us. But ultimately, praise God, Jesus not only is creator, he is the maintainer 
Is Paul stretching, stretching your mind when it comes to Jesus? How can you improve on this? And then he says, shifting from creation to the church, verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So Paul has described Jesus in three major categories. His relationship to God, his relationship to creation, and his relationship to the church. And he's saying you can't improve on this. Just supremely glorify this magnificent Jesus. And then he says in the next verse, verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. If you read through the letter, this idea of fullness and empty keeps on popping up. It might just be that some of those teachers were saying, what you have is good, but we've got something that would make it even fuller. And Paul says, you can't improve on Jesus because he is the fullness of all that there is. For in him, verse 19, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. I believe that verse with all my heart. And I want to spend time contemplating what it means. But it's going to escape our brain's ability to take in exactly what this means. All the fullness of God dwells in Jesus Christ. Verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Now, in verse 21, Paul shifts in this magnificent hymn, and he makes it very personal. Because we can come together on the first day of the week and sing some of these beautiful songs that we sing. And it is a gift to just uh, reaffirm our faith, to clear the, the, the darkness of the world out of our minds and eyes as we reaffirm our faith as we sing these great songs of faith. It's wonderful to praise God and to encourage each other through these songs of faith. And Paul then, after laying out this amazing hymn, shifts into some powerful personal application in verse 21. And you, and you, and you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Paul loves to use this comparison, what we were like before we met Jesus. You've seen the TV shows, you've seen the commercials where they're just advertising some product, whether it's makeup or clothing or some dye product, and there's the before and the after. And sometimes you look at some of those people in the before pictures and it looks like they fell out of the ugly tree and they hit every branch on the way down. Paul, sometimes when he stops to describe what we were like before Jesus powerfully worked in our life, he draws a picture, and it's not very complimentary. And you who were once alienated, our relationship with God was separated to the point that our very being was alienated from the Lord God Almighty. The Lord God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. The Lord God Almighty who is holy, holy, holy. 
the Lord God Almighty, who can have nothing unclean in His presence. And because of our sin, we were separated and alienated from God. And Paul talks about how deep this alienation goes in verse 21. You are hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Our minds were not right, and our actions were not right. Every single part of our being was out of sync and misaligned from God. We were alienated. That's what we were. Verse 22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The New Testament has a range of words to describe the new relationship that we have with God through the work of Jesus Christ. I think the most common one we use is the word saved. And the word saved, when you really get down to it in the New Testament, talks about the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back. And on the day he comes back, he's going to pour out the full measure of all God's holy, righteous wrath. But those who are in Christ will be saved from that future punishment. That's what the core meaning of the word saved is. Sometimes we use the word justified, and it's a legal word. It, it describes a person who stands before the judge, and there's a long list of every criminal offense you've ever committed. The evidence is overwhelming. You are guilty. Everybody knows you're guilty. Ain't no clever set of lawyers going to get you off this one. Ain't nobody going to say, if the glove don't fit, you must acquit. Oh, everybody knows that you are guilty. And in spite of the fact you're completely guilty, God says, I now declare you to be justified because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We are saved, we are justified, but this word is a powerful word, reconciled. Saved and justified kind of go together. They're both legal concepts in that justified describes the legal standing you have, and saved means you will not be punished. But reconciled is a relationship word. You know, couples that have gone through a difficult time in their marriage, maybe they get to the point where they're not talking very much. I was watching a movie recently called The Sixth Sense. I was reminded of a comedian, and he said he was watching it. And in the movie, the husband and wife, they weren't talking for a week, for a month, for about six months. And he said, I didn't know it was a horror movie. I thought it was just a movie about marriage. Reconciled. Couples sometimes get to the point in their relationships where something has happened, and somebody's hurt, and they're not talking, and distance begins to grow. But in Jesus Christ, not only does God declare us holy, just, saved, but God reestablishes a relationship with us. Isn't that wonderful? Where else can you find the healing blood of Jesus Christ that brings you back into a right relationship with God the Father? So what do we have in Jesus? We were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, but now we are reconciled. Then there's another image in here that's absolutely stunning. Here's what he says in Colossians chapter 1, 
verse 21. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Paul describes Jesus as a priest coming to God and he's bringing an offering to God. And the offering each, each and every Christian. He's bringing you to God and presenting you to the Father. No longer alienated, hostile in mind or doing evil deeds. Jesus is now presenting you to the Father holy and blameless and above reproach. Those three words come out of the common language of the first century. Holy is a word that will come out of a temple. Maybe our minds will go to those animal sacrifices that were made in the temple in Jerusalem. But the word that he uses after that, not only are you holy, but you are also blameless. This comes out of the law court, that because of the work of Jesus Christ, you're presented to God. We might say not guilty, or we might say innocent. And then he uses the word above reproach. There were people in the first century, there were moral philosophers that, that reasoned the type of life that you should live to be a good moral person. And Paul says, because of the work of Jesus Christ, if you want to describe it from a temple background or a legal background or a moral background, in Jesus Christ, we are presented to God completely holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. Now, the underlying movement of the whole book of Colossians is, hold on to Jesus. Don't give up on Jesus. Don't trade Jesus out or try to supplement him because you can't improve on Jesus. And here's what he says in verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. In the Caribbean or Caribbean, there's an island called Hispaniola. It's just west of Cuba. On the island of Hispaniola, there are two independent countries, Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Haiti's on the western side of the island. The Dominican Republic is on the eastern side. And Haiti is ranked as the poorest country in the western hemisphere. The island of Hispaniola also rests on two earthquake fault lines. This island and these countries have had far too many earthquakes. But in 2010, Haiti suffered a devastating earthquake. Over, over 300,000 people were identified as dead. Over 300,000 people were missing. And an estimated million people were homeless after that earthquake. But the neighboring country of the Dominican Republic has had vastly more intense earthquakes with far less injuries or death or homeless people. So this led people to ask the obvious question, why is Haiti so devastated by earthquakes when the neighboring uh, country seems to not be touched or phased very deeply by them at all? Now, they sent a team to investigate the difference. And here's what they discovered, remembering that Haiti is one of the poorest countries in the Western Hemisphere. When they begin to build a house and they lay a foundation for the house, because the country is so poor, 
They use very little concrete when they make cement. It's almost all sand. When they make the bricks, the cinder blocks that they're going to use to build a house, because the country's so poor, they use very little cement. They use almost all sand. And in the doorway and above the windows, while they may put a lentil in there, they use no rebar in the lentils to reinforce it when they put it above the door or the windows. So when you build a house that's almost completely made out of sand with no reinforcing steel and an earthquake hits the country, guess what happens to the houses? They just fall apart completely. And when I was thinking about that, I was thinking about the deep theological song that we sing in church. The wise man built his house on the rock and the foolish man built his house on the sand. And then the great invitation and admonition in that song is, so build your life on the Lord Jesus Christ. The city of Colossae was prone to earthquakes. It had been devastated by an earthquake about 50 years earlier. So when Paul writes to that city and he tells them, build your life on Jesus Christ. Because if you do that, your life and your faith will be earthquake proof. Look at the language that he uses. Isn't it beautiful? If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Paul is writing to the church in Colossae. And it seems like some of them are being tempted a little bit to, to supplement Jesus with what Paul would call some empty practices, Jewish spiritual practices, Eastern mystic practices, or maybe even some Roman uh, pragmatic practices that was based on if it works, it must be right. Paul writes to the church and he tells them and he tells us, you can't improve on Jesus. Stop trying. You can't go deeper in Jesus. You can't be lost in a sense of awe and wonder of who he is. So embrace Jesus and never let go of him. I think for me, when I look at this text, from verse 15 all the way down to the end of 22, this whole section, it emphasizes who Jesus is and what he has done for us. He is the image of the visible God. He is the creator and sustainer of the universe. He is the head, the firstborn from creation. He is a reconciler of all things, and he's our reconciler. Jesus does all that. Well, what do I do? You continue in the faith. You hold on to Jesus and you never, ever let him go. In our culture, I would say, be weary of fads and gimmicks. Be weary of trends and trendsetters that always seem to be telling us in the church, if we do this, we will fix our problems. I want to say, no, I've got Jesus. He's all I need. He's all we need in the church. What a wonderful, powerful section of Scripture. In a few minutes, our song leader is going to come and lead us in a song of invitation. And on your faith journey today, wherever you are, I hope that this message has encouraged you. Perhaps you haven't made a commitment to Jesus. And I would encourage you this morning, seriously consider 
making that commitment to Jesus because Jesus can take you from your alienated state and he, by his blood, can reconcile you back to God. I love the fact that the gospel is so simple. It is so simple that we've got to work hard to mess it up. The gospel in its simplest sense tells the story of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. That by his death, he has paid the price for our sins. By his resurrection, he has overcome the very power of death itself. And if you want to receive uh, the cleansing blood of Jesus, if you want to receive the power to live that new life, all you have to do is imitate his death, his burial, and his resurrection through your death, your burial, and your resurrection in the grave of water. Isn't that simple? Man, it takes us 2,000 years to mess some of this stuff up. It is so simple. But maybe you put on Christ many years ago. And maybe you kind of let your life gently drift away from Jesus. Maybe you're living a life that might be superficial in your faith. Maybe you've compromised your faith. Maybe you've left some sin into your life that is now dominating it. Jesus wants to present you to the Father. Holy, blameless, and above reproach. However you need to respond to this message, we're going to stand and sing a song of invitation and invite you to respond in the most appropriate way for you. Let's do that at this time.